we're going to open our Bibles and, and have a reading in a minute. Um, just to kind of catch us up on the Exodus story, we're going to watch a video. This is like a two-minute summary of where we're up to in the story of Exodus so far. If you're watching on the live stream, it's not going to appear. Um, sorry about that. We haven't got the rights for it. But um, just, uh, just, just relax for two minutes. The rest of us, we'll, we'll see what, what, where we're up to in the story of Exodus. Here we go. This story began several thousand years ago, and it began with a promise from God to Abraham that he would make his offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky, a great nation who would one day dwell in the promised land. More than 400 years passed, and Abraham's descendants had not seen this promise fulfilled. Instead, the Israelites lived as foreigners in the land of Egypt. Fearing that the Hebrews would grow into a mighty nation and overtake them, the Pharaoh of Egypt forced them to work as slaves. But Israel continued to grow. In response, the Egyptians increased their oppression of God's people, and Pharaoh gave a terrible decree. Every son born to the Hebrews would be thrown into the river. But a Levite couple defied this order, trusting God's will for their son's life. And God did have a plan for this child. Pharaoh's daughter found the baby and took pity on him. She named him Moses because he was drawn out of the water. As Moses grew older and saw the suffering of his people, anger burned within him. When he witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, Moses killed the man and fled Egypt to hide in the desert. Years passed and Moses made a new life for himself in Midian. Then one day the voice of the Lord called out to him from a burning bush. God told Moses that he saw the persecution of his people in Egypt and he heard their cries. He promised to deliver the Israelites from slavery and he commanded Moses to go before Pharaoh on their behalf. Moses was terrified. So God sent Moses' brother Aaron to go with him. The brothers went before Pharaoh, performing signs and wonders, but Pharaoh would not listen. So God brought down plagues upon Egypt, yet Pharaoh's heart remained hard as stone. That's what we're up to. And we're going to hear a, one of those, the first of those plagues from Exodus 7, page 64 in the, in the church Bibles. The, there are nine of them we're looking at today. They're on the screens just to give you a track of where we're going to go. Um, we've got the first one is when God turns the mile into blood. Then he brings out frogs, sends gnats, midges, mosquitoes. Number three, four flies appear all over the land. And then Egyptian livestock starts to die. Number six is when boils and horrible illnesses on the skin start appearing for the people. Seven is a terrible hailstorm that comes thundering down. And eight, an invading army of locusts devour crops until nine, Egypt's left in darkness for three days. So we're going to hear the first of those plagues as Sue's going to come and read to us. And then we'll explore what God's going to say to us through them. Good morning. The reading is from... Exodus, chapter, chapter 7, uh, verse 14 to 24 on, uh, 25 only, and not as printed on the, uh, on the service order. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take your hand, take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord with you. Oh, sorry. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace, and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water, because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Thanks, Sue. Um, keep Bibles open. We're going to do some Bible gymnastics, jumping left, right, and centre to kind of get the flow of these, these plagues. Um, but before we get there, has anyone heard of an elephant before? Hands up if you've heard of an elephant. Yes, very good. Some of you haven't, apparently, or maybe just our arms don't move this early in the morning. What about um, who's seen an elephant in real life? Oh, very nice. Now, if you ask that question, like uh, a thousand odd years ago in the Middle Ages, well, people wouldn't have seen elephants in real life. In fact, elephants took on this sort of mythical creature thing. In fact, here's some paintings of elephants in the Middle Ages. Look at them. That's not any elephant I've seen before. Like, what is that? Um, but because they hadn't seen them, they weren't commonplace. They were, they, there was no elephants in England at that time. And so they're like... They've heard of these things, but, but, but they seem like unicorns, dragons, like mythical creatures. In fact, here's a, here's a, a bit of a sermon um, that a preacher man preached at the time. Um, Alfred, his name is, he said, An elephant is an immense animal, larger than a house, completely surrounded with bones within its hide, except at the navel, the long nose, um, and it never lies down. The mother carries the foal for 24 months, and they live for 300 years. A few little mistakes in there, right? Um, but, but like elephants, like these mythical things, 
until 1255 and King Louis gifted King Henry III, England's first elephant that we kind of owned. Imagine being there going, oh, they're real. Those elephant things, they exist. Oh, no. <laughs> and it, it, like, in some ways, the way Pharaoh meets God is a bit like that, isn't it? Like throughout Exodus, because he first hears about God in Exodus 5, when Moses and Aaron go to him. And potentially Exodus 5 verse 2 is the most important verse in Exodus. If you've got a pen underlined it in your Bible, it's big. See, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say, the Lord says, let my people go. Look what Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. I don't know who God is. And actually, what, we've, what Sue's read out to us is the first of the amazing plagues and terrible plagues that God brings to answer Pharaoh's question. This is God showing who he is. And we use the word plagues, but actually, I wonder if we need to change our language a little bit, because the Bible does. Like in Exodus 7 verse 3, when um, God's speaking to Moses about what's going to happen, God says this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he won't listen to you. In the Bible, whenever God's people look back on this event in Exodus, they use the words signs and wonders, not plagues. And that's really important for us. So in the Psalms, in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, it's signs and wonders, signs and wonders. And that's big because, well, what do wonders do? Wonders are meant to amaze us and bring us to our knees in awe. And what do signs do? Well, signs instruct and teach. So something of these, these, um, these signs and wonders we're going to look at are meant to kind of bring us to our knees and go, wow, God, you're amazing. And we're meant to learn about God. Because actually, um, check out verse 17. This is the, the, the first sign and wonder God does, the, the, the blood. When um, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, in verse 15 actually, they're told to go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out of the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff, the staff of judgment that was turned into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has said to me, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile that we changed into blood. God's got a really specific message to tell the Israelites, the Egyptians, and the world. In some ways, God's identity is wrapped up in these signs and wonders. It's a bit like um, the, the BHOA Day. Now, I'm just going to mute my microphone for a minute. Uh, the BHOA Day... Come along next weekend, and you can hear Ben using this very megaphone to announce things to the world. It's like a megaphone makes your voice heard over large distances, right? It's a way to announce what's coming up next. Turn that off. <laughs> um, and, and, and these signs and wonders are God's way of announcing something about who he is to the whole entire world. And there's three things we're going to kind of look at today. It's not all there is to it, but, the, but these are three things. Um, they're under here as well, so you can see three lessons we're going to learn. Right? God is the only God. God is the only judge. And then briefly at the end, God is the only savior. These are three things I think God's telling us through these signs and wonders. And so let's get, let's get going. God is the only God. 
If you know anything about Egyptian kind of um, life and culture, you know they have a lot of gods in Egypt. Like, a lot of gods. They had a centipede god. But, but, but my, my favorite gods that they had are two of them. One of them's called um, Dua, or Dua, who's the god of sanitation and toilets. They had a toilet god, right? And, and then, but my, my favorite is the one on top of this guy's head. They had a, a, a god called Gengenware, oh, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, who was like, known as the Great Honker, a celestial goose who guarded an egg. Like, they had a lot of gods, like a lot of gods all over the place. So actually, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Pharaoh's not got an issue with there being another god out there. He's used to lots and lots and lots of gods. That's not his issue. What his issue is, is the next bits. Verse 16, let my people go. See, Pharaoh is like quite a modern man in some ways. He says, hey, Moses, Aaron, it's fine for you to have your beliefs, but don't you dare impose them on me. That's his big issue. And so God is showing him through these signs and wonders that he is the only God, the exclusive God that he rules. And I think like, one of the best ways to, to see this is looking at the magicians. So we met them in that first um, sign and wonder that Sue read out to us um, in verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. Verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Okay, so, so it seems like they can kind of mimic a bit of God's power, a bit of Yahweh's power. And we go to the second kind of sign and wonder, the frogs, and we read... This, in verse 6, Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. It it feels like the Egyptian gods are real and are powerful, right? But if you scratch a bit deeper, (laughs) what is the one thing you don't want when you've got a land covered in frogs? You don't want more frogs. You want these guys to get rid of the frogs, not make more of them. In fact, in fact, both times, God's got to be the one who gets rid of the, the blood and the frogs because they can't do it. They haven't got that power. And the next time we meet them, in chapter 8, verse 17, the third sign and wonder, Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground. Gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. They haven't got the power that God has. In fact, the next time they appear in the narrative, in the plague of, of boils, we read the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. God is the only God. And then you look at the kind of the signs and wonders he does. It, it's a little bit like, well, well, God's going one by one through the, um, the, the Egyptian pantheon of gods and knocking them down. Um, I'm going to get some help in a minute, but here's a list of some of the Egyptian gods that are kind of directly opposed to the signs and wonders God does. Happy, the god of the Nile. There's Hecht, the frog-headed goddess. Set, the sky god Osiris, god of the crops who can't protect the crops from the locusts or the hail. Ra, the sun god, and the whole world goes completely black. It feels a little bit like um, God's going bowling, right? I'm going to need Sam Ralph's help here because I cannot bowl to save my life. So, yes, it's, it's like God is setting up um, 
These Egyptian gods. Here you go. Yes, fantastic. One by one, as pins. There we go. Go on, Sam. Yeah, perfect. A fantastic strike. I'm knocking them down. That's brilliant. Showing that he is the only God. He is the only one. And actually, it kind of got me thinking that this is really kind from God as well, isn't it? Kind for the Egyptians. The Egyptians who are caught in their idolatry of trusting these other gods. It may be painful, but actually he's showing them that these other gods are nothing. These other things that they're building their life on are nothing at all and will not help them, will not save them, are pathetic pretenders. It's God exposing their hearts. And get this, it works. So, we're skipping ahead a bit, but in Exodus 12, verse 38, when God's people leave Egypt, we read this. Many other people went up with the Israelites. Egyptians. Who have been shown that their gods are worthless. That the living God of the Bible is the only God. And so they go, I want to follow that God. God is the only God. I think this is really big for us to learn too. Because we're a lot like the Egyptians, aren't we? Okay, we don't worship Dua after we flush the toilet. No, but, but, but we do set up other gods in our hearts. Things that take the place of the living God. It might be our jobs that kind of we sacrifice everything else to that. It might be our, our sport or our family or friends or, or a particular person. Um, it, it, it could be our education. We kind of make these things, oh, the only thing. And actually, it's really good for us to spend time looking inside our own hearts. And, and a guy called Rico Tyson, evangelist, he has a little test for us. He gives two questions to test ourselves. He says, ask yourself, one, what are your daydreams? And two, what are your nightmares? He's like, what are your daydreams? What are the things that you're longing for and wanting above everything else? That kind of shows where your heart's at. And two, what are your nightmares? What are the things that you're terrified to lose? That kind of shows what's going on in our hearts. Because I think part of this is God teaching us that he's the only God. God setting up the pins of our hearts and, 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 oh, and knocking them. I'll just kick him over. But I don't think my bowling skills can work. And knocking them flying down, showing, guys, I'm the only God. It's a lesson that we need to learn over and over again. Because actually, just like Pharaoh, we find ourselves in our hearts asking, who is the Lord that I should obey? And we lose sight of God's bigness and God's goodness. And so one of the things to have a go at, why not read the whole of Exodus 7 to 10? Like, fill your heart with the bigness of this God. See why he is magnificent and incredible and all-powerful and worthy of our worship. He is the only God. But he's also the, the judge. Um, I did chemistry for A-level. I did chemistry because I thought it sounded really cool. I thought you got to like blow up things and like create potions that like changed color and bubbled and like, I was like, oh, chemistry sounds so, so good. Rooted, when you choose your A-levels, chemistry is not about blowing things up. It's disappointing in that way. If you like chemistry, do it. But if you want to blow things up, don't do chemistry. Um, like, but but, but, but the, the one good thing about chemistry, the redeeming feature of it was like handling acid. <laughs> they bring out this hydrochloric acid, this, this, this kind of 
this acid in a, in a vat, and the technicians have those big like, oven glove things on the, the mask. They're like, oh, be very careful. They give you a safety talk, and they say, if you get some of this on your skin, watch out. That, that, that's really, really bad in your eyes. Hospital straight away, because it's so deadly and so dangerous and so horrible. And, and in some ways, like, these plagues are a bit like that. And I'll walk us through why in a minute. Um, but... God is judging Israel, uh, Egypt here through these nine signs and wonders that get increasingly more intense as time goes on. God is judging Egypt. And he's doing that because, well, it, Pharaoh and the Egyptians have ignored the voice of the Lord. But, but more than that, this is Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23. God says, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. You see, Egypt are being judged for ignoring the word of the Lord and treating God's son despicably. And I think we see that judgment all throughout the plagues, but particularly, um, we'll flick forward to the, to the boils in Exodus chapter 9, right? Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace, and let Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh. Now, that furnace thing is really important because what is the symbol of Israelite oppression in Egypt? What have they been forced to kind of use without the proper materials? What have they been forced to work as slaves in and with those furnaces? It's a symbol of their oppression now used as judgment. They're being judged. And learning that God is the judge. And so... I thought it's good for us to kind of feel the weight of this. Um, like, we'll kind of skim through these different signs and wonders and try and imagine what it's like for the Egyptians there. It starts off quite irritating and annoying, right? When, when the miles change, change to blood, we read in chapter 7, verse 24, all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. So they're, they're kind of having to find different ways and it just changes their lifestyle a little bit. It's frustrating and annoying. And then seven days pass, and, and frogs start appearing everywhere. Again, frustrating and annoying, but, but more than that, in chapter 13, oh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 13, we read that the frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. They are piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. Egypt's like a festering swamp at this point, like a horrible place to live and walk around and be. Disgusting. And then come the gnats, you know, midges and mosquitoes, that annoying sound, and then slapping yourselves over and over and over again. And then, then come the flies. I thought we'd kind of have a flavor of it. There they are, just all over the place, absolutely everywhere. And you realize that kind of the people must have been crying out to Pharaoh to do something about this. And yet... With the flies in chapter 8, or chapter 8, verse 31, the flies left Pharaoh and his officials and the people. Not a fly remained. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. He keeps ignoring God. And so the things ramp up. Animals start to die, all kinds of livestock. And, and suddenly, livelihood is lost for the Egyptians. And, and then boils and festering skin diseases. It's horrible. And again... Pharaoh's heart is hard. He would not listen. Over and over again. 
And then it ramps up even more. We get the longest description of one of these signs and wonders with the hail. And I want to spend a bit of time on this as well. Um, have a listen to verse 23. Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky. The Lord sent down thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. Um, if you're scared of lightning, you want to cover your ears now. We've got some echoing sounds coming just a bit. Had a bit of yeah, flavor to it. Um, We'll just pause that now. Um, but, but just imagine that echoing thunder all around and hail stripping the ground. And have a look at verse 23. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. It strips everything bare. Terrible hail. And then this invading army of locusts appear. And at this point, Pharaoh's officials are like, Pharaoh, let Israel go. This is too much for us. We can't bear this anymore. Let them go. Get rid of them. And Pharaoh still says no. And so chapter 10, verse 14, these locusts invaded all of Egypt, settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there ever been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. Nothing green remained on a tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. And then the final plague we're looking at today, darkness for three days. Um, this once mighty superpower stripped down to its knees. In fact, as you look at it, you can't help but notice Genesis 1 here, but in reverse, right? Egypt starts as this big, beautiful, plentiful land with grass and green and animals, and then bit by bit it goes back through the days of creation. Animals going, plants going ending in darkness, emptiness, and nothingness. God is the judge, and that decreation just gives us a flavor of what his judgment's like. And something gets me about this, because, well, in, in Exodus 9, verse 13, this is kind of what God says to Pharaoh. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, now my people go, they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. God's holding back. What happens in Egypt, the, the magicians call the finger of God. God is holding back. It's back to chemistry again. See, in A-level chemistry, I realized that the acid we've been using is 10% concentrated. And still, it can like irritate your skin and blind you. You ramp that up to 20, 30%, and suddenly you're starting to kind of corrode metals and going up to 60, 70, 100%. Like, this is the diluted judgment of God. God is the judge. And I think what we're getting here is, is a picture, a taster of his judgment on all people that ignore his word and reject his son. And I don't know about you, but, but I look at Pharaoh and I see myself in there. I see Stephen Demetrio left to my own devices. I am just like Pharaoh. God says, do something. I say, no thanks. God shows me how great he is. I go, oh, shut up. That's me, left my own devices. And actually, notice how Pharaoh gets more and more stubborn in his rebellion of God. And that's just like me. See, I, I think this is meant to be a taster for every single one of us to go, 
That's me. That's what I deserve. And that's just God's finger. Um, and so just a, just a word to you, if you're not trusting the Lord Jesus, um, please let this be a warning. Like God's judgment is real and it is terrible. It's real and it is terrible. <laughs> please don't be like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who, who thought God was make-believe and not real and not someone worth his time. It is a dangerous thing to ignore the living God and to reject his son. God is the judge, but, but, but I think this also hits us because, well, actually, we, we were at KO um, last week. We were kind of a week ahead at, at KO, and we were looking at this bit in the Bible. Um, and we, we asked KO, like, what should we do about this? And, and one of them said something brilliant. I mean, they also say something brilliant all the time. But one of them said, um, we should tell our friends. Man, I've got to tell my friends about Jesus. This is really important. I think that's right, isn't it? Like, this is meant to make us go, oh, oh, this is real and serious. I've got to start doing something about it. But again, if you're like me, um, we get caught up in the haze of life of comfort and of just niceness here in Hove, of like easy life or comfortable stuff, and, and kind of we lose sight of God's judgment. And so we're not as urgent about telling our friends about Jesus. We're not as urgent about our family. Like my brother and sister, I've kind of dropped off the radar telling them about Jesus. And I think pastors like this are meant to be a kind of ice bucket over the head for us to kind of, you know, wake all our senses up and go, oh, this is serious. This is real. I've got to start doing something about this. Um, God is the judge. And it's a terrible thing to be on the wrong side of him. But, but the other thing we do see as we go through these signs and wonders is that God is the Savior. And the only Savior, too. Because God's people are just as sinful and rebellious as the Egyptians. If you read the Bible, you'll go even more so sometimes, right? Um, and actually, they endure the first three plagues along with the Egyptians. But by the time we get to number four and the flies, have a look with me um, over at verse 22 of chapter 8. God says, On that day when I send flies over the whole of Egypt, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I'll make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. God's people are safe in God's place from judgment. For them, it was the land of Goshen. They're safe there, not because they're better than the Egyptians, but because of God's love and mercy and grace. And that's true for us, too. See, the, the last sign and wonder we're looking at today is the land covered in darkness for three days. It takes our minds forward, doesn't it, to the cross where three days, three hours of darkness covered the land as Jesus died. It's almost like on the cross, Jesus was, was kind of drinking the pure, concentrated hydrochloric acid of God's judgment and wrath on sin. So that for everyone trusting in him, well, we can be safe under that cross. Safe in God's place, and God's place is his son, Jesus. God is the Savior. A salvation we don't deserve by a truly wonderful and terrible God. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to um, sing a song that helps lift our eyes to see the magnificence and magnitude of our God. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you... 
are, are real, you are big, you are mighty, you are the only God. Father, where we've kind of forgotten that you're also the judge, Lord, please remind us of that. Uh, and Lord, help us too to remember that you are the Savior, you are the safe place. And would that fill us with, with great joy and joyful praise too.